0: The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being re-syndicated here by io9. Welcome to The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi,
1: I'm David Barr Kirtley. And this is John Joseph Adams. And welcome to episode two of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. They say lightning never strikes twice, and yet here we are. (laughs) Uh, We have a great show for you today. We'll be uh, interviewing... Paolo Bacigalupi, a very exciting new writer. His first novel, uh, The Wind-Up Girl, is just out. And uh, so I guess we're just going to start out and talk about Paolo a little bit. In addition to his novel, he has a a short story collection called Pump Six and Other Stories. And so I was just looking at his short story bibliography and noticing that he's published a grand total of 12 stories, and the number of of best-of-the-year anthologies he's appeared in is 12. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, he has as many Year's Best appearances as total published stories. And, of course, not every story has been uh, picked up for Year's Best, but those that have have been picked up more than once. You know, for some of us other writers who who consider ourselves hmm. quite talented and uh, are quite proud of our, our grand total of one Year's Best <laughs> anthology appearance in which we clutch to our breast like Gollum with his ring, uh, it's sort of... Uh, <laughs> It's 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 quite something to think of somebody uh, who's had uh, 12 stories, 12 years best appearances. So, I mean, that just gives you uh, an idea of how highly regarded Paolo is.
2: He's also uh, had a couple of stories nominated for like the Hugo and Nebula and uh, uh, at least one like uh, People of Sand and Slag was nominated for both. Um, and he won the uh, Theodore Sturgeon Award for Best Short Story for one of them, I think, uh, The Calorie Man. And not to rub it in with the year's best appearances, Dave, but I think one of them, I think the Fluted Girl actually appeared like both in the science fiction ones and in like the year's best fantasy and horror. Because like it was like it sort of straddled the line between like, well, is this fantasy or is it science fiction?
1: And uh, so I think it actually ended up in multiple things. Yeah, well, and and speaking of Fluted Girl, I mean, that was the first story by him that I read. You know, if if you haven't read it, the, the premise is that there's this woman and she's been genetically engineered to have her body have cavities. Through it so that she can literally be played like a flute, and so, so I just read that story and I was like, wow, that's really creepy, and that was not the last time I had that reaction to something <laughs> I read by Paolo. and it won't be the last. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean that one was very memorable, and but the, the one that just really blew me away when I read it was the people of sand and slag that you mentioned, and I guess this story came out of a conversation he had with someone who said that we didn't really need to worry about protecting the environment because technology would always enable us to weather any. Climate change or environmental change, mm-hmm. and and so in this story, it's it's in the future, and people are genetically engineered to survive in the extraordinarily toxic environment that they've created, and they can eat sand and digest it and and stuff. It's it's just a really cool story. I agree. <laughs> That's why I reprinted it in Wastelands. So you, you, the, the the magazine that you work at, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, was hugely important in Paolo's uh, really just orgy of of short fiction. <laughs> writing success <laughs> yeah uh, that's true or or, or, uh, or as i like to refer to it bachigalupalooza <laughs> but so i mean you were there you were there for this i mean could you yeah. do you remember like when you first read his stories or
2: yeah um well you know uh his first story uh, a pocket full of dharma uh that actually was published a couple of years before i started the magazine but you know he uh he went a, a long period of time between selling that and then selling another one but the first one that he sold uh since then was the fluted girl and uh, and i was there when that came in and so you know i'd never i'd never heard of him before at that point either and so uh how it would work at sf is that i would always read the slush but then also before gordon bought anything for the magazine he would always give it to me and ask me what i thought of everything and so you know i read the story just as if he was a slush writer basically cuz i had no idea who he was and uh it was just like amazing i mean it's it's like that's the sort of thing that you hope to find in the slush. And uh, he's the sort of writer that sort of show why, you know, short fiction magazines uh, in general are, or short fiction in general is still important. And the, and the magazines, uh, because they tend to be open to submissions, whereas like anthologies are often uh, invite only. And so, like, I don't know that Paolo would have reached the point where he is as a writer, if not for that reassurance from the magazines that he's, uh, you know, he's good enough to be a writer.
1: Yeah. And so then he published the story, Calorie Man. And another story set in the same world called Yellow Card Man. And they're sort of set in this future where these big agro-business companies that produce genetically modified seeds and patented seeds and cause all sorts of problems, that their power has just grown enormously. And there's sort of these cartels that control everything, and they hire hitmen to take out their competitors and things. So those two stories are set in the same world as uh, his novel, The Wind-Up Girl. And then we think maybe the story uh, I just mentioned, People, Sand, and Slag, is set in that same world.
2: Yeah, well, because in The People, Sand, and Slag, um, the the thing that allows them to sort of live in this toxic environment you mentioned is that they're powered by something called weevil tech. That isn't really explored or explained, but, you know, it appears to be uh, some sort of genetic modification that allows them to sort of eat the sand and, and process it and whatnot. In one of the stories, or in Wind Up Girl, uh, certainly Weevil Tech is mentioned, uh, I'm pretty sure about that. So I, I, I think that probably The People of Sand and Slag is set in that same milieu, but you know, hundreds of years later, or I hope it's hundreds of years, uh, I mean, Paolo's pretty pessimistic about the future, so uh, it's hard to say how far in the future that is, but it seems pretty far.
1: Uh, yeah, and so this, this novel, The Wind Up Girl, was also just named to Time Magazine's top 10 best novels of the year, so obviously that's really exciting. And in addition to being just such a great writer, Paolo is just a really fascinating interview subject. I mean, every interview I've read with him has just been great, so hopefully all, our interview will be will be good as well.
2: Okay, so let's get Paulo on the phone. Hello? Hey Paulo, this is John and Dave with Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. How you doing?
1: Great. Uh, Paolo, first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Where did you grow up? How did you get interested in science fiction? And what sort of uh, early writing did you do before breaking into print?
0: I uh, grew up in western Colorado in a very small town called Paonia. It's where I live now. I got into science fiction because my father was a science fiction reader. One of my formative books was Citizen of the Galaxy. And I think the copy that he gave me was actually my grandfather's copy of that book. And it's it's a sort of an old beat up hardback. I still have it on my shelf, and I think it was actually the first book that I ever ever like big book, you know, in my in my child mind. It was the first big book that I ever read. I think I read it in third or fourth grade or something like that. And it completely sucked me in. And after that, I I just kind of kept reading in the genre. Um, and my dad had a huge science fiction collection, and so I went through a bunch of his science fiction, and then a boyfriend of my mother's my parents are divorced. And so a boyfriend of my mother's uh, also is a big science fiction fan. And he actually gave me his entire science fiction collection, which amounted to, I don't know, probably a 1000 volumes or something like that. And so I just sort of grew up reading science fiction and being immersed in science fiction. And when I started thinking about writing, I think it was just sort of Almost, I don't even think I really thought of writing anything else. I think that my assumption in my head was that I would write science fiction. Those were the kinds of stories that were interesting and the kinds of stories I tended to think up. I wrote a bunch of novels. I wrote one novel, um, which is now in a trunk and will probably stay there forever. This was about when I was 24 or so, and I I wrote that novel. This was when I first was starting out and thinking, "Oh, I'm going to write a novel and it'll be published, and I'll be a 25-year-old wonderkind." And I did write that novel, and while I was doing that, I had a chance to go to a reading by William Gibson, and I asked him about how he'd broken into the genre. And his response was, well, I sat down and I wrote enough short stories so that people took me seriously so that they'd take a risk on a novel. And I I sat with that for a little while and then went and wrote my first short story Based in that novel that I was working on, it was sort of a spin-out story from that. And that was Pocketful of Dharma. And that was my first story that I ever sold. It was the first short story I'd ever written. At that point, I sort of thought I'd arrived. I sort of thought everything was going to be all sweetness and light from then on. Um, I got an agent for my novel and then didn't actually end up selling that novel. And then I went on and wrote three other novels, and none of those sold. And so it was sort of this, I had this weird blip of publication right in the very beginning. And then I kind of disappeared for a while while I sort of hacked around in the weeds. So that sort of took a long time. And then after I'd written four novels that had failed, uh, I was at a point where I was pretty much on the verge of giving up on writing. And I I certainly was done with writing novels. Um, It was too hard and too depressing to write a novel and then see it die and then write another novel. And, you know, you spend a year, year and a half of your life doing this, and then it was another dead project. So I realized, though, that I still liked writing short stories. That was something that um, I liked the act of writing. And there was this one small crack that had ever opened up for me, and that was writing that short story, pocket full of Dharma, and having it sell immediately. And so I thought. Well, you know, there was this crack, this doorway opened just slightly there. Maybe I should actually just go and lean on that doorway, the one spot where I've ever heard any sort of, you know, positive feedback about what I'm trying to do. Uh, maybe I should just do that instead. And so I went on and started writing short stories. And the next short story I wrote was The Fluted Girl. And that one sold as well then things got easier. I kept writing short stories, and I wrote The People of Sand and Slag, and I wrote The Pacho*, and all of those sold very quickly. And People of Sand and Slag got nominated for The Hugo and the Nebula. It was very strange, because I'd been writing for so long, and nothing had been happening, and then suddenly a lot was happening.
1: Okay, so um, how did you develop your writing skills? I mean, did you take any classes or read any books on writing or anything like that?
0: I never took any classes. I actually had a book, I think it was called The Weekend Novelist. It was basically a, a structure how-to book on here's how you take characters, here's how you build a scene, here's how you make conflict occur between two characters, here's how you set up several scenes in a row to create a, a story arc. And it was uh, it was actually a, a fabulous book because I sort of felt like before then I'd had ideas and I'd start to write down an idea and then I'd hit this stall point. I, I was actually a fairly decent nonfiction writer, but I couldn't figure out how to make Story work exactly. And that book was incredibly formative for me because you it, it just said, here, conflict. Conflict is the engine of your story. You know, here's how you create a protagonist. Here's how you create an antagonist. Um, and so that book was really key for me um, just because suddenly I could give some kind of motion to my scenes. I could actually make them work instead of simply having a couple of characters talk at each other for a second and then fall dead. I remember reading Writing Down the Bones. But that was more from just a creativity perspective, uh, sort of letting yourself loosen up and play with language. The actually, oddly, the other thing that really got me going was a a book called The Artist's Way, which is, I don't know, a self-help book for artists. (laughs) And what it's just a process book for figuring out why you're blocking your creativity, why you're not moving forward with the idea of what your dreams are and things like that. And I remember that actually having a huge impact on me early on when um, when I was trying to sort of have enough faith in myself that I should write and that it was a worthwhile project to do, even when you knew that you weren't going to make any money at it and that it was going to take up time and it was going to mess up time with your girlfriend. It was going to just make your life more complicated rather than less. And so I remember that book also really sort of helped me sort of go ahead and commit to the idea of being a writer long before I actually had earned any outside support that that was a good idea.
1: Uh so you mentioned Citizen of the Galaxy, are there any other books that just had a big influence on your writing?
0: I mean, people like William Gibson, every time I read his writing, uh, there's a part of me that just aches because he's such a, a fabulous stylist. And so, I remember parsing a lot of his writing trying to figure out how it was that he was creating imagery and how he was I don't know he had a he had a, a a sort of liquid prose that I always loved. Uh but other people uh Ursula Le Guin, I remember reading The Dispossessed and that was sort of the first moment that I realized you could write a story that wasn't just just aimed at being an entertainment but might also speak to deeper issues or or more complex questions than simply, you know, what happens next for the protagonist. I remember reading things like Empire of the Sun by J.G. Ballard and really liking that uh, the Sun also rises. I remember reading that. And that was that was sort of an interesting book for me because I, I, I would sort of go back and forth between I'd read something like Hemingway and admire the spare quality of the prose. And then I'd go and read something like Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian with with its lush language and, and I'd sort of try to wander between those different poles of style in terms of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my own writing. There was a point where I went through a long uh, sort of Cormac McCarthy emulation phase because I was so enamored with what he did. Now it's a little bit different. Now I, I tend to be working out specific problems in my writing. And so I'm looking for ways that people have dealt with those specific puzzles. I, I just tend to read through writers and and they aren't necessarily speaking to a specific task, but I'm I'm just sort of harvesting out of them all the time. So if I'm reading, if I'm trying to figure out how to Deal with a dystopic setting or something. I'll be looking at some some book that might be completely unrelated, some fantasy novel or some even some mystery novel, and I'll see something that an author does and think, oh, I'm going to steal that.
2: After your several failed novels, you did write a very successful one, um, one called The Wind Up Girl, which came out in September and has been receiving all kind of rave reviews. So why don't you tell us uh, who is the Wind Up Girl and uh, what's the book about?
0: The Wind Up Girl is about a future where Sea levels have risen, oil has run out, and giant agricultural companies control most of the energy on the planet through patented sterile grain. The story takes place in Bangkok and is sort of a political thriller about these agricultural companies trying to find a seed bank that's hidden somewhere in Bangkok. Uh, The Kingdom of Thailand has managed to survive and sort of keep at bay the, the sort of imperialist ambitions of these big agricultural companies. Because it has a seed bank and it has access to genetic diversity that it can engineer its own food, where other countries can't. And so, basically, the the agricultural companies, the the calorie companies, they want access to that seed bank, and the ties want to protect it. That's sort of the overarching plotline of the story. The wind up girl herself is actually uh, a Japanese secretary slash slave uh, owned by a Japanese businessman. She's a, a something called a new person. She's genetically engineered to be smart and sexy and uh, obedient. Uh, and her owner has abandoned her in Bangkok, where she's considered to be essentially uh, an illegal import. And she'll be destroyed if, if the authorities ever get a hold of her. She's struggling to survive in Bangkok. And she's one of the four major characters that are in play in the story. Uh, the other ones are a Chinese Malaysian businessman who's a refugee from ethnic cleansing in Malaysia. There's a, a Thai environment ministry officer named Jaidi who is uh, trying to defend the kingdom at all costs. and then there's the seed bank spy, Anderson Lake. Uh, and all of these characters interacting with each other sort of causes mayhem to ensue, I suppose.
2: Okay, so why did you decide to set the story in Thailand specifically, and uh, what kind of research did you do on Thailand to make it seem authentic?
0: I decided to set the novel in Thailand because I was passing through Thailand about eight years ago when SARS broke out. I had been traveling in southern China and then through Laos and down into Thailand, and the entire time there was sort of a, a, a whisper of something going on in southern China about a disease going on, some kind of a flu, some kind of a something Uh, Nobody really knew what it was. And then all of a sudden, when I sometime when I was in, I think maybe when I was in Laos, suddenly, it turns out that uh, SARS was breaking out and a whole bunch of people were dying in Hong Kong. And then more and more people were dying all over Southeast Asia. I ended up caught in Thailand in Bangkok, trying to get out of the country, not really knowing what was going on around me. There was a you kept getting news reports that this plague was building um, and news reports about how how many people it was killing and how infectious it was. I was fairly poor at the time. And so I was staying in a really cheap flop house in Bangkok and it didn't have any air conditioning. And it was in a fourth or fifth floor walk up. And if the, the room faced west and it was all made of concrete. And so this room would soak up all of the western equatorial sun. And so every night... Even as evening was falling, this is in in Thailand in April, it's sort of the hot season. Uh, And so the outside was baking, but the room itself was also baking. And you could lie under this fan and have it blow all night. And it didn't make any difference because the walls were radiating heat in on you. And so I was sort of stuck in this sweltering environment. And my skin started to have this weird skin reaction where my my hands were getting all puffy and, and started developing these weird blisters. So I had sort of these pustulous hands. And uh, there's this lurking disease and people are wearing masks to sort of ward off this perceived infection. And nobody knows how bad it's getting. And, you know, you're hearing more and more cases being reported everywhere you go. You're hearing somebody cough and wondering whether or not that person's about to give you SARS. And Thailand was a really unfamiliar country for me at that time. And so it was all sort of overwhelming to be there and have all of these events sort of spinning out of my control. I didn't have control over my health. I didn't have control over my sense of mortality or anything, my risk factors. I didn't really understand where I stood. Um, It just was all very uncertain and, and scary. And when I left Thailand, it just sort of stuck with me. The whole experience stuck with me. And I sort of felt brutalized by the whole thing. When I got home, it ended up being something that I kind of kept returning to to write about. And you see that in the novel, that there are plagues, that there is this uncertainty about whether or not there's a plague about to sweep in, whether it's blister rust or syphyscosis. And, of course, the sweltering heat and just the loss of control over your storyline. None of the characters in The Wind-Up Girl really have control over, uh, over their future. They're, they try very hard to have control, but they don't actually have much control. They're um, always buffeted by other events that they don't know about that are sweeping in on them. In terms of doing research, I read a lot of books, uh, books about Thai history, Thai culture, uh, religion, Um, read a lot of actual Thai writers in translation, trying to get a sense of how Thais write about themselves. Then I went back to Thailand uh, and spent, I guess, about a month there traveling around in the country and talking to people and just trying to get a better uh, physical sense of the place. And a better embedded sense of what it was like to be there than just my sort of fever dream version of it.
2: Some of those other places you traveled, uh, I mean, do you have any memorable experiences that happened there that were maybe not so horrifying as what you just described in Thailand?
0: No, almost all my travel experiences are horrifying. I mean, honestly, the thing that the thing that happened when I was traveling through Laos, uh, I have a friend who used to work there. And his when I was visiting his business partner was kidnapped, uh, taken away by the government, uh that ended up feeding into the book. Uh there's a character who also gets disappeared in the in the book and that wasn't originally a plot line, but it was it was another one of those traumatizing experiences that you don't really know what's going on a lot of the time and there are people and there are governments and there are systems that can swallow you up. And that's what happened to my friend's business partner was that he was just swallowed up. He was asked to come to the police station, and on the road, he was abducted by some men in uniforms, and that was the last anybody ever saw of him again. And you don't know why it exactly happened. It's never made clear. Uh, My friend never found out exactly why it happened, whether it was because they were making Chinese business interests angry or whether they'd made somebody in a certain ministry angry or um, if it was just somebody, an enemy that they'd made somewhere in the town. So, yeah, I don't know. No, most of my most of my travel experiences are almost always miserable.
1: So a lot of your work has to do with the consequences of global warming and science fiction fans tend to be really interested in the possibilities of technology. Do you think there is any realistic hope of a technological fix to global warming, something like carbon sequestration or geoengineering?
0: I think that the geoengineering things are are nuts, uh, mostly because we we can barely build an adequate climate model right now. And so being able to model or even understand what would happen if say we put, I can't remember, I think it's sulfur dioxide in the clouds, for example, to increase our albedo. There's a bunch of different kinds of ideas out there. Um, But the I think you're 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 getting into that realm of the the classic unintended consequences uh, story, really. Where oh, it just seems so simple. If we just did this one thing, then it would be fine. And and it turns out there's always a cascade effect when we apply a technological fix to a natural environment. Um, yeah, you know, when we apply pesticides, there are all sorts of cascade effects. When we put Put together a factory farm. Even there's there's cascade effects. When we create a monoculture crop like corn all across Iowa, you've got cascade effects. So I, I think that you know these the geoengineering solutions specifically are are insane. In terms of like you know some version of carbon sequestration, it's hard to. One of the things that's really interesting about being a science fiction writer is trying to decide which storylines matter. If you pick up uh, an environmental uh, newsletter, you're going to see one set of storylines in ascendancy, the the ones that tell you about the destruction of the earth. If you read something like uh, popular science, you're going to see another set of storylines that say, look at all the cool gadgets we've got, or look at the cool gadgets that could change things for climate, for this, for that. When you're talking to a science fiction writer about what they think will work, it it probably tells you more about the science fiction writer's own prejudices about where they weight storylines than it is any real perception of the truth, Um, I can't say that there's not going to be some fabulous way to scrub carbon out of our coal-burning power plants and sequester it. You know, fantastic then. But, you know, I haven't seen it. And the reality is, is mostly, from what I understand about our current climate situation, we're already past the point of causing immense damage. And when we talk about the possibility of a technology like carbon sequestration, that's all we're really talking about is a possibility and when that what that translates to is business as usual, because somehow we're going to get out of it. But because there are no technologies that are proven, nor are there any technologies that are in wide use, that's this, this is, these are non-existent technologies. Um, they're, they're idea technologies. They are, in fact, fiction. There is a solution for sequestering carbon, and it's not to burn the goddamn stuff in the first place. If you don't release it into the atmosphere, it doesn't cause problems. What you could do is you could tax carbon. It's a terrible technological fix, though. It's a social fix. It's not shiny.
2: Okay, so I, I think we've sort of established uh, that you have a kind of a pessimistic view of the future. Now, on, uh, <laughs> online reviewer Blue Tyson uh, wrote that, quote, if Bachigalupi ever writes anything that is sweetness and light, that right there would, would be likely proof of the many worlds theory and the fact that you slipped into an alternate universe. So what do you think of that? Do you agree, or is it possible you might write something that's all sweetness and light someday?
0: Uh, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on how people define sweetness and light. You know, I just wrote a uh, a young adult novel set in a devastated global warming future um, that'll be coming out, what, this May. And for me, it is sweetness and light. The characters aren't destroyed at the end. They um, they actually have genuine wins. Um, the boy who's the center central character gets his cake and gets to eat it. But the world is world around him is is completely screwed up and so for me it's it's definitely more upbeat than anything else i've ever written on the other hand i've heard some early reviews uh from the arcs going out and responses is still along the line of oh my god this is dark and grim so what i thought was a fairly upbeat adventure story other people seem to find fairly devastating anyway so who knows (laughs)
2: Uh, you talked a bit about the importance of raising the next generation to be not so selfish and short-sighted, and so and so you have this uh, young adult novel coming out. Is this uh, is this your vehicle for brainwashing them?
0: Oh yeah, totally. No, this is this is mind control. Uh, a year or so ago, I realized that I can write a lot of really powerful stories uh, for adults. Uh, I can talk about things like endocrine disruptors, or I can talk about global warming. I can talk about drought. I can talk about a lot of things, and an adult reader listens, and they think that I've said something powerful and important, and then they go on with their life business as usual. Um, and you realize eventually that writing for adults is, in the sense of becoming a change agent or having some influence over the way that we order ourselves in society, it's pointless. You can't, you can't change adults. Uh, we're too set in our ways. And so it's very difficult for us to contemplate actual behavioral change that would matter. Um, a behavioral change that it matters for an adult would be to stop driving cars, you know, to to move out of the suburbs into the city to, you know, things like that. But we're talking about radical changes, really. I mean, in, in the American context, particularly, specifically. With young adults, I think there's, there's still some potential. You know, one of the things about science fiction that I always liked and was in awe of was that it's had a certain predictive quality. Science fiction writers would imagine some future um, and some new technology. And and then you'd see engineers who read those stories grow up to, to build those technologies. You see NASA scientists who, who work on rockets because they read about rockets. And you see the people who built uh, Second Life point back directly to Neil Stephenson's snow crash and say, yeah, I wanted to build that. It was too cool to, to, to leave alone. And so you see this, this potential in science fiction specifically to inspire progress by sort of describing a version of the future and then creating essentially a myth that uh, people can live into. I'm in some ways an activist, and so writing a story about the, the futures that I want young people to be thinking about or to, to put onto their radar is, is probably the only way that I'm going to have much impact. And so one of the things that I'm interested in my young adult books is looking at, at sustainable technologies that I think are pretty cool, wind technologies, things like that. But I'm trying to make them look as cool and sexy as a rocket ship or a race car or any other high technology device and trying to make those, trying to sex them up enough so that even if we don't have those technologies now that young people might be inspired to try to build them later. In an interview you did last year, uh, you talked a bit about the absence of
2: books that appealed to boys and how many problems this creates for boys in school. So your YA novel, Shipbreaker, sounds like it might be something that would appeal to boys. Uh, Have you seen any other developments on this front? Have you seen any other books coming out that you think might help solve that problem?
0: Uh, You know, I haven't haven't been following. uh, I've I've been sort of buried in writing lately, and so I haven't really been following what's coming out. Yeah, I am uh, pretty concerned, actually, about boys reading um, and boys finding stories that are appealing. I, I have this sense, I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting to me about science fiction as well, is that science fiction was was uh, for a long time a juvenile boys literature. I think it was our gateway to reading. Certainly, Citizen of the Galaxy was my gateway to reading, and without it, I'm not sure that I would have been a reader. You know, we're talking broad stereotypes here. But if I wanted to talk about the quintessential boy's story, it's one with shit that explodes, not just as, as something along the sides, but pretty much as a central idea. Violence occurs, warfare occurs, problems are solved oftentimes through violence. Um, you know, So you think about classic stories and their war stories and things like that. Those are the kinds of things that I think boys connect to. And now it seems like that. The space that, say, juvenile science fiction literature sort of filled before, I think, is being filled now by, by video games. Um, I think things like Halo and Left for Dead and uh, Grand Theft Auto, things like that, are essentially fulfilling the role of boys' narrative these days. Um, uh, science fiction grew up and became a very grown-up, adult genre. Um, it's it's a complex and, in many cases, self-referential genre. So it's not exactly entry level anymore, and I'm not sure that anything else sort of replaced it as a in terms of telling stories that that appealed in some ways to boys. In certainly in the YA space, uh, it's dominated by female readers, and I think that's really interesting. My wife, who's a school teacher, has a lot of trouble getting boys to read or engage with the stories. And when I look at sort of the books that are, you know, on hand, it seems like there's a dearth of things that I would call, in, in the largest, most stereotypical sense, a boy story. Um, and it's because those things aren't, we don't consider those things to have literary quality. Shit that explodes is not does not literature make. Um, the things that I'm, I'm sort of looking for in terms of boy stories tend to be those stories that say that, yeah, stuff explodes, violence occurs, zero-sum fights occur. It's all about survival, <laughs> things like that. And that stuff doesn't seem to be there. It seems like more and more there's an emphasis that says uh, in literature is that warfare, fighting, violence, etc. are all bad things meant to be taken off the table and, and civilized out of us. And I'm not sure that's really in our DNA in some ways. If we're going to have a population where boys are, are readers and engaged with ideas at all, I think at the entry level, at least, they need to be engaged with stories of things that excite them that's sort of, that's definitely one of the things that I'm interested in doing is writing stories. I don't mean to, I don't intend to alienate girls from my stories, but I definitely want to suck boys in.
1: Okay. So uh, kind of on the same subject, uh, you've been involved in some online discussions about what short fiction magazines could be doing to try to attract new young readers. John here is about to start editing his own online short fiction magazine, Lightspeed. Do you have any advice you could give him?
0: I think uh, almost all of the big respectable science fiction and, and fantasy magazines have the same exact problem, which is that they're eclectic, and eclectic products have a much harder time finding a an audience who will follow them. I'm I'm astounded at, at the fantasy and science fiction readership, for example, who is willing to read both my story and a Peter Beagle story. Um, I think that those. Uh, satisfy very different um, experiential urges. And so having a magazine that caters to both my writing and Peter Beagle's writing means that you have to have a very special reader, somebody who's willing to essentially genre jump and, and experience jump uh, inside of a magazine. I don't think most people are actually like that. Um, I think when we look at consumer magazines and stuff like that, we see people um, narrowing themselves down significantly. I think that the magazines were conceived at a time when an astounding story simply was enough. Um, But now I think that the readership has shifted a lot. And so now you have people who are specifically, oh, I'm, you know, I really am only a steampunk reader. I don't actually cross over much other stuff. I really am a military SF reader. I don't really cross over into much other stuff. And so I think that any generalist fiction magazine has a difficult row to hoe there. I mean, I don't know what other readers are like. Maybe I'm just stereotyping off of myself, but I honestly don't like to be surprised by the next story I pick up. I kind of want to know what kind of experience I'm looking for. Um, There's a reason why I return to Elmore Leonard novels or something is because I really like the Elmore Leonard experience. And I want more Elmer Leonard-like experiences. Uh, I think it's interesting that a magazine like Analog, which, you know, in many ways is spoken of as being, you know, extremely old school and, you know, sort of the driest side of science fiction is also the one with the strongest readership. And I think that's because it's closer to providing a consistency of experience from story to story. Uh, So what are you working on now? So right now I've got Pump Six uh, and Other Stories, which is my short story collection, and that's out. I've got The Wind Up Girl, which is out in hardcover and should be coming out in trade paper by May, I guess. Um, so those things are out and running. There's going to be a release of Shipbreaker also in the spring, uh, my YA book. And then I'm working on a sequel to Shipbreaker, which I'm hoping to have finished up probably within the next month or so. And then after that, I've got sort of a secret project that I, I'm sort of rubbing my hands about, but I haven't gotten to the stage where I'm really willing to talk about it. It's another book, but. It's sort of in that formative stage where when you talk about it, it sounds too stupid to believe, so. <laughs> All
2: right, well, thanks for coming on the show, Paulo. I think uh, it was certainly a fascinating interview.
0: Thank you, sir. It was good talking to you.
1: And that was our interview. Uh, thanks again so much to Paolo for joining us on the show. All right, so so Paolo talked about how he got interested in science fiction because his dad was a science fiction fan. Um, you know, it was certainly the case for me that I got interested in science fiction because my parents are big science fiction fans, and basically all the books that they read to me as a kid were were fantasy or science fiction, um, The Hobbit, and you know, um, Paolo mentioned Citizen of the Galaxy. I, I vividly remember Red Planet and Have Spacesuit, We'll Travel. Did you also get interested in science fiction because uh, of your parents or?
2: Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, unless, uh, except maybe in the most uh, sort of tangential way. Um, I mean, my mother was a science fiction fan, but I don't remember her ever really handing me science fiction books or anything. It wasn't like she had a collection that I gravitated to because it was there in the house. My sister was a science fiction or fantasy reader, mostly mostly a fantasy reader. And so she tended to sort of be my supplier of (laughs) books. She's six years older than me. And uh, so when she you know, got to be about 16 or so, and she started getting her, her first jobs. Or maybe when she was a little older, she was working at a B. Dalton uh, bookstore. So she used to get access to a lot of uh, books for free and stuff because uh, back in the old days, uh, they used to let the booksellers take the stripped books home um, for free, and so she would give those to me. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, mass market paperbacks, uh, when uh, they don't sell at a bookstore, they tear the covers off and they send the covers back to the publisher, and that's how they sort of return them to get uh, reimbursed for them. Anyway, they would tear off the covers of these books, and you'd have the book that would just get thrown away. And so the booksellers were allowed to take those home sometimes. You know, so uh, that's how I mostly got into science fiction. I mean, I, I never really identified it as a science fiction reader because. I'd always been just given things, and it wasn't until much later that I uh, sort of got back into science fiction through like uh, after taking a detour through like medical thrillers, and, uh, which led me to Michael Crichton, and then Michael Crichton sort of took me to science fiction. Although my, uh, my mother did have something to do with Michael Crichton. Uh, she had a copy of Jurassic Park laying around the house, and just seeing that cover with the skeleton dinosaur on the cover just <laughs> was uh, pretty captivating, and I could not help but pick that up.
1: But it, yeah, it does seem like collections of science fiction books get passed down to people, You know, when I was at USC, you know, when I first got to LA, I just didn't know anybody there. And so I was just looking for any way to, (laughs) to meet people. And I was new to Facebook at that time. And uh, I got a thing on it saying, you know, we're going to go watch the Joss Whedon's Serenity on opening night. And we have some spare tickets. Does anyone want to come? And I don't know how I got this message, but I said, sure. You know, even though I didn't know anyone who was going. If you're into science fiction, you know, you, you just feel comfortable inviting yourself along <laughs> to go to a movie in a way that I, I wouldn't, I don't think if people were just going to go see a sports movie or something. So one of the guys I I met at this thing was just a huge science fiction fan. And uh, so we were talking about books, and this guy had just read everything. And he was only, you know, 19 or 20 or something. And just every book I mentioned, he had read. And, and after a while, I, I just said to him, how do you... <laughs> <laughs> How is it possible you've read all these books? And and he said that growing up he had had this mentor, and this guy had been a big science fiction fan. And and when the fellow died, he willed his science fiction collection to this kid, and this kid just felt as a as a tribute to his mentor that he would take as a project to read the guy's entire science fiction collection, and and mm-hmm. he did. And wow.
2: <laughs> you know that's that's very cool to hear. I mean, uh, you know, because I mean, I've certainly speaking of bequeathing your collection to someone I, I have thought about that i mean just because you know i have uh, i've sort of started to amass quite a collection myself and because like you say i mean this guy just gave this kid his whole collection and and it sort of uh changed the kid's life
1: yeah and and this guy he was a you know film student at usc which is the top film program in the country unless you listen to someone who goes to nyu but uh <laughs> you know so he, he was just familiar with fairly lesser known writers like ray Vukcevic. And he actually, he really wanted to adapt uh, Meet Me in the Moon Room into mm. a, uh, you know, a short film anthology mm-hmm. thing. I hope he does that someday. I think that would be really cool. Uh, so, so, Paolo was talking about boys not being engaged with reading in school. And so, you know, you and I were boys not all that long ago. Uh, what was your experience in school? I mean, did you feel engaged by the reading assignments? And was there any fantasy and science fiction in the classroom?
2: Uh, I don't really remember being very engaged at all. I mean, um, not that they picked really terrible things. I mean, at some point we did read Brave New World, and at some point we read Fahrenheit 451. Those were the only two cool books that I remember us reading. So, like, you know, I never had to read 1984, or I didn't get to read The Hobbit or anything like that. I don't know that I would have connected with the assigned reading no matter what it was. I mean, because like, when we read Fahrenheit 451 in school, like I didn't get into it then because it was like work. I only read it like I have to put quotes around the word read because, you know, I think I read enough to answer the study questions or whatever, because they, they sort of take all the joy out of reading things in school, I think. And uh, and it wasn't until later, like uh, when I, I was working at a bookstore and uh, and, you know, one year all the kids kept coming in to buy Final 51 because it was assigned for class. I, I just said, oh, uh, you know, let me let me try reading that again, because it, it seems like it's such a cool book, you know, and I really gotten back into science fiction at that point. So I, I took it home and I read it and I I just loved it. I mean, I, you know, I read it all like in, in one day, in one afternoon. Um, and it was actually kind of funny. I remember reading it on a day when I was off from work and I was just sitting at home and uh, the air conditioner had broken and I was living in Florida at the time. So, and it was in summer. And so, you know, I'm reading this book called Fahrenheit 451 on a day where, you know, I'm sitting in a house that's probably like, you know, over a hundred degrees. And so it's like, you know, I don't know why I decided to pick something that was temperature based on a day where I was like probably broiling, uh,
1: so, you don't think, regardless of what they had assigned, you wouldn't have read it just because it was an obligation?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily uh, said that, except that I have evidence of uh, Fahrenheit 451, which obviously is a book that I love now. And uh, when it was assigned, I, you know, didn't, you know, respond to it at all because of the way teachers sort of pick apart every little detail and make you sort of hunt around in the text for trivia questions, basically, that don't really have any relevance to the greater ideas behind the story or it's not going to help you understand the story more by like some of these stupid questions they would make you hunt around for in the text. It's just like to prove that you read it. Like, I don't know, I, I couldn't get into anything that made me do, that I had to do that for. And, you know, Brave New World as well. Like, you know, I mean, I I had to read that later as an adult as well to have any appreciation for it.
1: My experience in school was was different. I mean, I anytime they assigned a book I was that appealed to me, I, I, I had a great time reading it. Um, and it was different, though, in, in elementary school, they tend to assign more books I like you know, one of the first books we were assigned in school was The White Mountains by John Christopher. And, you know, they told us only to read a chapter at mm-hmm. a time or whatever. And I, I went home and read the whole book this, that night because mm-hmm. it was just so uh, captivating to me. And then when I was in fourth grade, my teacher was great. And he uh, he was a big science fiction fan. And so we just read lots and lots of science fiction in that class. And it was uh, heavenly <laughs> that, that year. Mm-hmm. And I, I so vividly remember so many of his lessons, because they interested me, whereas a lot of other years from around that time. I don't even remember the teacher's name, you know, but I remember so much of what this guy said. And so like we, uh, like one thing is we watched Back to the Future and there's, you know, uh, there's a part at the beginning, uh, Michael J. Fox goes to the Twin Pines Mall and then he goes back in time and ends up in this farmer's field where there are two pine trees and he runs one of them over. And then when he returns to the present, the mall is now called the Lone Pine Mall. (laughs) And so like, like this teacher pointed that out to us and it was sort of one of my early lessons in how you could just put little things like that into a story where, you know, people wouldn't even necessarily notice it the first time through. But it was one of these little, like, Easter eggs almost that, that you would mm-hmm. notice uh, on, on more unrepeated viewings. Um, and, like, we read the Narnia books. Mm-hmm. And he said this, this thing I've never forgotten, you know, in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When the kids first go through the wardrobe into Narnia, they end up in this wintry forest. And there's a lamp post standing there. So, so the teacher said, why is this lamp post here? And there was this kid in the class who always talked too much and he 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 launched into this huge explanation of how in the, the magician magician's nephew, the witch rampages through London and rips a lamppost out of the ground and you know it ends up in Narnia and, and that's why the lamppost is, is there. And the teacher said, Well, no, that's that's not really what I'm getting at. I mean, why from from the authors why did the author put this, this lamppost there? And and none of us you know, really knew. And and he said, It's because in, in storytelling things have to be specific and and concrete and tangible. And the forest is too abstract. You know, it's cool. They come into a forest, but there has to be one thing you can focus your attention on. And it's just a, a vivid image in your mind. And so, you know, a lamppost is, it's not just a tree in a forest full of trees. It's, it's something special and memorable. And so, you know, when they, you know, like the covers of that book that I read, it, it's that image. It's the forest, the winter forest with the lamppost right in the middle and the kids staring at it. And, and that was just sort of, you know, one of my first introductions to the idea of thinking like a writer and thinking of what effect is this going to have on the audience and on their perception and not just, like you said, identifying symbols and, and things that are more of interest to academics. But then, you know, uh, l- later in, in later years, the books, uh, you know, didn't interest me much that we read. Mm-hmm.
2: So I mean, at that age, and what what did you say in fourth grade? Were you uh, were you already writing at that stage, or did like this teacher kind of you know make you a writer because of him being awesome?
1: No, I was always a, you know I okay. was always a creative. You know, I, I actually used to dictate books you know stories to my mom before I learned how to read because I was you know putting books together you know long before I learned how to read. Mm. Um, but uh, actually, you know, there's this guy Jonas that we know. And he told me one time that, you know, he's he's from Sweden. And uh, he said that he was just kind of an average student in English class. And then one of his aunts brought the Dragonlance series, you know, back from America. And he just loved those books and read them over and over and over again. And before long, he just tested out of English entirely. They just said, you yeah, know, there's there's no point in you being in this class anymore. You Your English is perfect. And, you know, he's a scientist. He lives in the U.S. now. And I think that's just such a testament to the ability of something that interests you to uh, to change your life. Yeah. Um, and
2: it's, it's funny about like those books in particular too, just like, you know, there are so many people, like, I mean, I talk to, you know, a lot of uh, writers who, who uh, sort of around the same age as me or, or maybe a little older, a little younger, you know, and we and when, whenever we talk about you know the sort of uh, formative books that we read as kids, it's funny how how often those books come up, even though I think most of us now would look back on them and say, well, you know, you know, they're not really great literature or anything. I mean, they're not even really particularly good fantasy novels, but you know, man, they sure um, you know really did something to uh, the minds of a lot of kids reading them. You know, just sort of.
1: Well, no, I, I mean, know you know, I, I haven't gone back to them in, in years. And mm-hmm. I actually, I just pulled one off the shelf not too long ago and just kind of glanced at a section at random and, and, and did sort of groan at the the mm-hmm. prose. But, I mean, a story doesn't really take place on a page. It takes place in your head. And mm-hmm. the stories that took place in my head that those books inspired were, were fabulous, you know. <laughs> yeah, um,
2: But I was going to say, um, when you were talking about... Um you know, books assigned in middle school, how you seem to like those better. I do remember liking um, A A Wrinkle in Time when we read it. Although in that case, I had actually read it before we read it in class. And so I I wondered if that was one of the reasons why uh, when we actually were doing it in class that I actually enjoyed revisiting it. Like maybe if I had read all these books, took them home and read them from start to finish, and then went back and reread them to do the assignments, like maybe then they wouldn't have been tedious. But I was probably, I think I was probably trying to read them um and do the assignments at the same time, so I was never stop. I was never enjoying what I was reading. I was just looking for the answers.
1: I do sometimes wonder if we might be better off as a society if we just didn't teach literature in school at all because yeah. it just seems to turn so many kids off of it and I just wonder if you know we would actually have more readers if it were just not a part of school at all. but then
2: what would uh what would writers do as a career? Or, you know they have to teach something <laughs> you know because most writers can't make a living uh, just on their writings.
1: I don't know. That actually segues into my next question. You know, one Uh of the uh, stories that we read in this this fourth grade class that I loved so much, it was an Isaac Asimov story called The Fun They Had. And the premise of this story is that it's in the future and there are no schools anymore. Kids are taught by robots. And a kid sort of learns about what school used to be like and how you would get together with other kids and and how much fun it was. And of course, when I read this story, I just thought, well, this future sounds awesome. Give me the robot (laughs) anytime. I don't want to have to... (laughs) I don't have to hang out with all these stupid kids. But I wonder now with the Internet, I mean, the Internet is making so much obsolete. It's making newspapers, you know, paper newspapers obsolete and just a million other things. But is it making schools obsolete? You can spend all day on on the Internet watching lectures by the greatest minds alive on the planet right now. Mm. Are we going to get to a point where you're better off programming your computer with lectures and not having schools as physical locations at all?
2: Uh, I mean, uh, I could see that actually, I could see that happening in the future. But I mean, I, I don't think we're anywhere near it right now, maybe several years down the line, if some enterprising, you know, educator actually, you know, puts a lot of effort into developing that as a feasible method of education. I, I could see it working, although I think the social aspect of school is actually kind of necessary to some degree. I mean, because I can imagine a kid who just never goes to school and he's, all he ever sees is his parents and chats with people online. Um, I mean, I could see antisocial behavior growing out of that, Uh, just like doesn't know how to behave around people. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think as geeks, we sort of have enough of an issue with that. And, And that was with us being forced to go and socialize. So so people like us, I mean, we would sort of probably retreat into our shells even more at a young age and like never develop any social skills. You know, you and I are sort of fortunate enough that we had enough social skills, even though we were huge geeks, that we were able to sort of outgrow uh, our most awkward parts. And now we're, uh, you know, sort of affable, awesome people. But uh, Charismatic
1: podcasting hosts. That's right. Um, But I mean, it seems like you could decouple the academics from socializing, right? That you could have, you you could Mm -hmm. do the academic stuff at home and then go out just for socializing and... It doesn't seem to me that putting Mm. those two things together necessarily produces good results. It seems like just Mm. they distract from each other. Well, like in the new Star Trek movie, you know, we we get a glimpse of the Vulcan educational Mm. system, and it consists apparently of just kids in their own little uh, (laughs) indentations in the floor, (laughs) you know, just being taught by a computer. Right. Um, That actually kind of makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, especially since there are so many subjects that it seems like don't work well in a classroom setting. I mean, like for discussing literature or something, maybe you want some other people there, but people just learn math at different rates and science at different rates and foreign language at different rates. And, you know, particularly, uh, you know, if you're sick and you miss a week of school, that can mess you up for the, for the rest of your life, essentially. If you you just miss too much and you're behind the class, it seems like you would be better off, you know, everyone going at their own pace.
2: Right. You know, I mean, that uh, I, I certainly had experience with that. Uh, with with missing a lot of school, like screwing you up, like uh, in, in 10th grade or something, Um, I was like taking Algebra 2 and uh, I, I missed a lot of days of school. And, and like at, after that point, it was like there was no way I was catching up in Algebra 2. And, you know, the teachers don't have time to sort of handhold you to get you back to where you were. And the thing is, I mean, I was actually advanced in math. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just like impossible at that point for me. It's kind of stupid that I still passed. I have no grasp of Algebra, really. But, you know, the school system just sort of set up to
1: make it very difficult to fail, I think. Speaking of failing, that that sort of reminds me of a, a story, you know, relevant to, to this discussion. I mean, because you have teachers sometimes who are like, ooh, science fiction so bad. And, and of course the, the teachers who are like that have never actually read any science fiction. You know, you, you ask them and, and they, they just don't know what they're talking about. And it's just so frustrating because they'll say that these books that you love are bad and they'll give you these other books and tell you that these books are good and you just read these books and you're like, this book is not good. And It just makes you think that your teachers are deficient, you know, mentally or aesthetically or whatever. But uh, it just seems like, you know, to get a teaching degree, one of the requirements should be someone should explain some basic human psychology to you that being dismissive of the passions of your students is not a good way to build rapport with them, particularly if you're being ignorantly dismissive. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is this kind of snobbish attitude sometimes. And I took this test, you know, in school now you have all these sort of standardized scam tests. And, um, in, in New York, we had this, this one for reading and essentially there were only three questions. So each one made a big difference in your score. And one of the questions was, uh, you know, write, write about the themes in your favorite book or something. And so uh, my favorite book or one of them anyway, at that point was Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, you know, which is about aliens and space war and and stuff like that. And it is a, is a fantastic book and and really appeals to teenage boys. But so I wrote uh, an essay about that. And so the grades come back, and my teacher comes to me and says, "You know, you know, David, you're you're very bright, uh, and this standardized test indicates that you're in a persistent vegetative state. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what what what's going on here?" And uh, and I sort of said, "You know, I I think I have a hunch about what's going on." So I took the test again, and I wrote an essay about the grapes of wrath, and got a mm. you know great score. So just stuff like that is very very frustrating. But so I mean, for you know for parents, uh, you know, who have kids maybe who aren't readers. Uh, what books do you think they should be giving their kids to try to get them interested in reading?
2: Right. Well, like you were just talking about Ender's Game, I mean, that that's certainly one that's, uh, I mean, I think a lot of young kids would be interested in, and especially, you know, younger boys. But, uh, I mean, I was going to say uh, one that I just read recently um, was Leviathan by Scott Westerfeld. I mean, this one actually is uh, would be much more... Uh, friendly to boys i mean it's sort of a, a world war one um alternate history where sort of technology has developed differently in different parts of the world and so the good guys sort of pursued uh, biology and so they're called the darwinists and they sort of genetically engineered creatures to do what they want instead of building machines to do it and then the other side they built machines to do things it's just uh, this cool sort of uh, clash of different cultures uh set against the you know the backdrop of world war one and as i was reading it i was thinking like Wow. I mean, this is like, I mean, not only is this like an awesome narrative, I could see people teaching this in classes like forever. Like, I mean, because there are so many aspects of the book that would just be fascinating to sort of explore because there's all the alternate history aspects where you can sort of talk about the differences between what really happened and what happens in the book. And like, why did maybe the author decide to change this part? And you have evolution, you have sort of evolution of, uh, evolution of biology versus evolution of technology and, and that, yet when you're reading it, it's just like it's just pure fun, and uh, uh, it doesn't feel didactic at all. I mean, that's that's certainly at the top of my list right now. Although I, uh, um, as we were saying in one of our other episodes, uh, you know, I tend to think of things that we read or played recently.
1: See, I'm different. I always tend to think of old favorites from my childhood, and you know, it's that's the thing. You know, with the YA stuff now, there's just so much of it. I, you know, I don't even know where to start recommending it. I mean. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess I could could say, you know, I I teach um, at the summer writing workshop, you know, for for teenagers. And so I see what what seems to be popular among among them. And yes, Scott Westerfeld is very popular. Um, Tamara Pierce is very popular. Holly Black. Uh, Tim Zahn is very popular. But I mean, for me, I I tend to think of what I liked when I was a kid. And I was very fond of Robert Asprin's uh, myth series. Um, Mm -hmm. It starts with another fine myth. And every book in the series has the word myth as a pun in the title. Um, And also William Sleater is just a great young adult science fiction writer. Um, And his novels, uh, my favorites are Interstellar Pig, The Green Futures of Tycho, and Singularity. And those are all just great, great books. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And be sure to join us next week when we'll be interviewing P.W. Singer, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, whose new book, Wired for War, explores the real-life use of military robots. See you then.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or davidbarcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Dead Spill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.